in a world where Mad Lab Theater. What are you doing? Making the Mad Lab ad for Cinema Wheeler Tay. Oh, here's my other one. Susan thought it was just another day, and then she met Mad Lab. Why don't you just say that Mad Lab is the new works theater in downtown Columbus, featuring hilarious comedies, powerful dramas, improv with FFN, the annual Young Writers Festival, and the longest running shorts festival in central Ohio, Theater Roulette. That sounds pretty awesome, especially when I do it over the Star Wars theme. Star Wars is always a good choice. Mad Lab, the original. For more information, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or visit us at madlab.net. Episode of Cinema Wheeler Tay. It's Sean, Tony, and Scott as usual. Hello. Hello. <laughs> and today we're joined by a first-time guest. We're really excited to have him on. Uh, it's Tony's good friend Brennan. Thanks, Brennan, for coming on. Oh, you're certainly welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah. Glad and, to have you. Thank yes. you. And uh, Brennan's here to join us today to discuss uh, a movie that I've always really enjoyed, um, and it definitely brings back memories for me. Um, it's Tim Burton's film from 1988. It's uh, Beetlejuice. Okay, we can only say it two more times, guys. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> and then he appears, and we have Beetlejuice on the podcast. <laughs> oh, now we're down to one! Oh, oh. Beetlejuice. There we go. We got it. Who's the other guy? You say his name three times. He comes. Candyman. Candyman. Yeah. That's an even worse one. Do not repeat right, right. that one. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a deep cut. I think for all the horror fans out there, it's the Candyman <laughs> reference. Okay, there. Now we're down to one for time. <laughs> <The> Candyman. <laughs> what? I want them all to come. Why do you have to say it in my house? <laughs> Well, I'm that didn't I guess I'll become a, a ghost and then I'll have to say my name three times. So it just repeats itself. Candyman is not cycle. a ghost. He's like an insanely dangerous killer with a hook for a hand. So why would you have to say his name three times though if he doesn't have any supernatural? Can he just appear? Well, on his I own? guess technically speaking, he is a ghost. I don't really know what his relationship is with <laughs> the other world and our world, but I know that he has a hook for a hand. Bees come out of his mouth. And <laughs> He's got like this really deep, scary voice, and you basically, if you ever have an encounter with him, it's like you're either gonna die, and if you don't die, then you're gonna be really messed up. Right. He's either a ghost or has a really strange medical condition that <laughs> should be treated soon. I think both. If you got bees coming out of your mouth, I think you know, medical condition is probably not the right <laughs> diagnosis. No, probably not. Probably not. I think um, it's safe to say he classifies as a demon. Oh, okay. There is probably point? a distinguished difference between a demon and a ghost. Yeah. yeah. You know. A demon would what be if... summoned, I think. Yeah. yeah. Yes, hence the, the calling the name three times. So Beetlejuice may be a demon as opposed Possibly. to a ghost. Possibly. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. debatable. No, he's a bioexorcist. I mean, yeah. that's his calling card. Yeah. <laughs> oh. That's his profession, though. You know, because I guess they need right. jobs in the, in the afterlife, so. Right. <laughs> that may not be his I species. Think he, I, Beetlejuice had a job in real life, like in, in actual life. I feel like he would either be a used car salesman mm. 
or maybe a con artist, which is basically could be the same thing. Yeah, that is. No, that's true. You know, I, I, that's the first notes that I wrote down when I thought of the character is like he's a used car salesman, essentially. Yeah. That's part of the appeal of the character, I think. It's, he's the ghost with the most. He's the ghost with the most. <laughs> that's what he says. Yes. <laughs> he's a he's a he's a character full of catchphrases. I know that. So he, he is a he's car salesman. Yeah, he he, he loves catchphrases. He also refers himself as an average everyday Joe, like myself. Yeah, that's my favorite line. Yeah. Right? Uh, so I wanted to go around and talk to everybody about their first uh, experiences with the movie. Um, uh, I'll start with Brennan. Like, what was your first time coming across Beetlejuice? Uh, hearing well, about it? Yeah, well, I actually saw it in the theater. Uh, as a little kid, uh, my parents took me, and I was—I would have been eight. It's nineteen eighty-eight. So when it, like you said, when it came mm-hmm. out, and, and honestly, I, it kind—it of, scared me. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I mean, as a kid, I did not get it. I thought this is weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is really weird. I've never seen anything this weird. Um, and I would say, like, actually, I don't think I was afraid of uh, Beetlejuice as much as I just found the character of Lydia like really disturbing <laughs> yeah because I'd never seen like a teenager that morbid she's like you know pre-goth but she mm-hmm. nails it I thought what is she's obsessed with death this is the weirdest thing um, I didn't really enjoy it until the end when she you know the, the song she's floating mm-hmm. in there uh, it's the first time I saw it mm-hmm. little kid mm-hmm. thought it was weird kind of scared <laughs> but not by the you're not scared by not the not by Beetlejuice Beetlejuice was, was kind of fun I thought yeah. he was like a clown or something you yeah. know he was funny he made jokes you're just scared of goths not clowns <laughs> it was just the mood the ambiance it was just kind of like that's fun. the weird claymation and stuff <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the snake the, part yeah. the snake the snake yeah. part was scary yeah. yeah yeah I mean tonally it is a very dark Mm-hmm. movie you know especially when you're a child yeah and it's kind of like being trapped inside of you know like tim burton's dreams or you right. know, in this abstract life that he's that that occurs in his head um just the different things that you're seeing there with the which we all know now is very classic tim burton but then it was sort of new you know we were oh, just sure. getting to know tim burton really as a director at that point and also, I mean, you know, I was being tagged along because you know, to my parents, they're thinking, oh, yes, the guy that did the Pee Wee movies. Mm-hmm. It's going to be kid friendly. Yeah. Right? Which Pee Wee himself is even not kid friendly. No, he's which is not. Great. I love Pee Wee Herman, full disclosure. <laughs> well, I was scared uh, in the same vein that you were, but for a different reason. Like, when I went to see it, I was hanging out with my friend. I remember this vividly. Because I remember the the trailers are on TV constantly saying, from the director of Pee-wee's Big Adventure comes this adventure with ghosts. So I'm thinking it's going to be this offbeat comedy, which it is, which it is. Um, But I was hanging out with a friend of mine at the time. His name was Seth Krasowski. And this was an eventful weekend for me because he had a Nintendo system. This was 88. And... I had never played Nintendo before. Oh, like I'd heard deal. of it. Yeah. That was a huge yeah. deal. Mm-hmm. If you owned a Nintendo in your house, it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. So it's the very first time I got to play Super Mario Brothers, the first the Super first Mario one. Brothers. Yeah. yeah, and I was like, "Wow, I can see how you get to get addicted to this <laughs> constantly." <laughs> but we also went to see Beetlejuice that weekend because we were all excited. It was like the talk of the town that everybody wanted to see this Beetlejuice movie because it looked really funny. Yeah. And I loved Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It was like one of those movies like Back to the Future that was on constant rotation. We would rent those tapes constantly at the video store. So we went to see the movie and, you know, get talk about some of the elements that struck me immediately when I saw it. Because it was original, like you said. It, it 
it, it was unique, and you felt that immediately when you saw it. But I was scared. It's but when Gina Davis rips her face off at the very, very beginning of the movie, it scared the shit out of me. Yeah. Like I was like, there were two instances where Tim Burton has scared the shit out of me as a kid. That was that instance. That was when Large Marge, Large Marge. turned her face in and Pee Wee. And it's like, wow, Tim Burton traps you into thinking I didn't, you know, I didn't wasn't thinking maybe those terms at the time. But he, there's this cute comedy, and then it's like, boom, right? Large Marge. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember if I ever saw this movie in a theater or not. Um, I think maybe I did, but uh, I don't remember, you know, when it came... I don't remember. It must not have been that much longer after it came out that I saw it, so... Um, but yeah, that was, my, that was probably my first big-time memory of Michael Keaton mm-hmm. is this movie, is when I'm like, oh, yeah, he's pretty awesome. He's got his, especially watching it again. I know we're yeah. talking first time. But his his performances. He's a genius. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was. Uh, I really did not know much about Michael Keaton before Beetlejuice, but in the eighties, like he was like up there with like Bill Murray and Tom Hanks for a while. Yeah. He's like one of the top comedy actors, like yeah. one of the top comedy stars, because he had had a one-two punch with Night Shift and, and Mr. Mom. Mm-hmm. In the beginning of the decade, that's right. and that's when he broke out. And what's funny to me is how little screen time he has in this movie. And even in the, that was one of the disappointments I had when I first saw the movie, is I thought it was all was going to be only about Beetlejuice. The ads only focused on Beetlejuice, mm-hmm. the character, and the movie's named Beetlejuice, <laughs> right. but he's only in like maybe a third of the film. You know, he's not in it that often. I think he's in like 20 minutes tops or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, but he dominates every scene that he's in. So I, I felt like it didn't feel like he was not in it that much. Yeah. You know? I, exactly. Because everyone's talking about him, too, when he's mm-hmm. off screen or off camera. Yeah. I really don't remember the first time that I saw Beetlejuice, because in 1988, I was three, so I definitely did not go to the theater to see it. And it, it's not... Um, it's not my favorite Tim Burton movie, so it's definitely not one that I gravitated towards as a kid, like wanting to rent. I really loved Edward Scissorhands, and I do remember seeing that as a kid because my big sister had a big crush on Johnny Depp. <laughs> um, but um, you know, I, re- I, I honestly couldn't really share exactly when I first saw it, but I think it was probably sometime in maybe middle school or high school. So at that point. I- it didn't really scare me, and I was already introduced to who Tim Burton was, and you know, because he had put out, you know, the Batman and then um, Nightmare Before Christmas, and so I was kind of already like, oh, okay, I know what I'm getting into here with Tim mm-hmm. Burton. There's going to be, you know, crazy designs and, you know, weird stuff going on. Um, but uh, I think it's a really interesting movie because I don't. I don't know exactly who it's targeted towards. You know, is it targeted towards kids? Is it targeted towards adults? Because I think there's really a lot of cross-mingling there, you know? So, I don't know. When I watched it, I enjoyed it. But it was not something that I felt like I always had to go back to. It just was, oh, okay. That was that. You Mm -hmm. know? It was Mm -hmm. never one of those movies that rendered a lot of thought or... um, It didn't really speak to me in any ways I just was kind of like oh okay mm-hmm. this is Tim Burton <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know what effect it had on me I don't you know I, I remember it was just like a fun movie and then um, 
you know, Candyman came out and said, oh, they're doing the three things. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Which Candyman did come out after this, I think. Yeah, it did, yeah. 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 So yeah. I wonder About if About four years after it, yeah. so. And I do actually, weirdly enough, remember seeing that as a kid. So I didn't see Beetlejuice, but I saw Candyman. Wow. Maybe that's why it made that impression. <laughs> Maybe that's why I was like, oh, this is nothing. Yeah, yeah. Candyman is much more impressive. Right. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I remember it was a fun movie, and I, I do remember when you guys said the scary part. The part that always freaked me out was when they had to pull out their faces oh, in yeah. the office, yeah. and then he sticks his fingers in his eyes and stuff. Right. I always thought that was really bizarre and scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the point. I know the face ripping off thing, but that that was always the creepy part to me. Is yeah. she, she takes her mouth and mm-hmm. puts it out and puts her eyes in the middle. And... Well, they're kind of in the same theme, you know, of, of like being face. You're not. That was like a PG movie, and you're not used to seeing stuff mm-hmm. like that. Ghostbusters had a few scenes like that too that were kind of scary for kids. Mm-hmm. I think that was another film I remember had an impact on me, like when Sigourney Weaver's voice changes. You know, when she's possessed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The thing with Tim Burton is, I don't think his movies are very scary. I just think he has moments where it'll make you jump. Yes. Because yeah. you're not expecting it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I wouldn't really ever consider any of his movies to be scary. My perception. No, they're, they're not scary. They're, they got a horror... There's a darkness to yeah, it. Yeah, darkness. There's always a tonal... But, but they never... There's scary moments. There's moments in... Especially his early movies. Like, there's that one moment, like, Large Marge, and we had a few moments in this one... Mm-hmm. And Batman, when he electrocutes the guy, and he's mm-hmm. a skeleton. Oh, I mean, there's yeah. things That's that... That's funny, though. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess it could be... I mean, they've done... Yeah. Like you said, they can be... You, you can look go either way. You can either laugh yeah. about it, or if you're young enough, you can be freaked out yeah. by it. Mm-hmm. I think they just can make... They make you jump. Yeah. Because you're not anticipating, you know, whoa, that face just changed like that, you know? I don't think he's like a kid. He just like, wants to scare you. Yes. Like, just jump yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah, his movies do, even though there's always a dark tone to them, there is a very childlike quality, I think, in um, all of his live-action movies. And I mean, even in some of the animated ones, but you're right, it's almost like a kid's imagination kind of cartoons or drawings that, that he did when he was a kid, I feel like we're seeing them realized in some of these movies. Um, and there's this, just the design elements that he uses, the colors and the check checkered marks and checkered. stripes mm-hmm. and then you know um and don't forget the trees i mean tim burton's trees. yes the trees yeah 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 there, there's like it's um it's almost like a fun house mm-hmm. yeah that's a good you way know, of putting beetlejuice i think was very much like that for me anyway watching it it was almost like i feel like you're in this this fun house you got this crazy clown character and a lot of wee, weird stuff happening <laughs> like faces popping out and eyes bulging and well, he was an animator too. Like he started off as a Disney animator, yeah. which yeah. I think people sometimes forget. Mm-hmm. Like I think he and John Lasseter, who's the head of Pixar, they kind of started out as animators for Disney mm-hmm. at the same time. And I remember reading interviews with him about his experiences with Disney and saying, like, like he was working on movies like The Fox and the Hound. This was not like a high mark period for Disney sure. where they were releasing their biggest films. And he said, "I just don't think I was designed." to draw like cute deer and mice and stuff like that like he probably had those weird angular things but then he started doing like these these short films like Vincent which was a stop motion animation film it was like a short like like maybe a five to ten minute short that got a lot of attention you know because it was about Vincent Price this kid who was obsessed with Vincent Price 
but it was like The Nightmare Before Christmas in that style, mm-hmm. and it was in black and white, because I know he grew up loving these classic horror films, mm-hmm. and that's what caught his attention in Hollywood, and I, th- I think because he's an animator, he thinks visually. He's probably one of the most striking visual filmmakers mm-hmm. I've ever seen. He's like mm-hmm. up there with Stanley Kubrick and people like that that have this very distinct visual style. You know, Kubrick was a photographer, so there's right. something about guys that come from that background. They think visually before they think verbally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would, I would say it's fair to say just as a filmmaker, I mean, to some degree, I don't know if this is the right way to phrase it, but uh, a Tim Burton movies, I feel like, is sometimes only as good as its script because mm-hmm. he's, he's just not, doesn't have that level of interest. Uh, as much as he does in the visual side of it. I was just going to say that too. I think, yeah, I think with Tim Burton it is more of a visual thing because I think he was an artist, he's an animator. Um, So visually it's usually always very stunning, but like Brennan said, sometimes the storyline or the script is just kind of maybe like mediocre. um, Plot is not necessarily his priority. Yeah. No. No. That's why I think, in my opinion, Edward Scissorhands was like the exception for Tim Burton. Um, and tr- because I think that is a really great story. I mean, it is striking visually. You have, you know, the, the cookie-cutter homes and the bright colors, and then you've got Edward, you know, just sticking out like a sore thumb. But I think the story is really a remarkable story, you know, that underdog and the oddball coming into this civilized society and things falling apart and people aren't what they seem and um, a lot of those kind of classic, like a children's book. And and then it kind of reads like a children's book. Um, And, uh, again, so there's that childlike quality of of Tim Burton. But you have the the stunning visuals. But I do think Edward Scissorhands was overall, was probably one of his best movies, like, plot-wise and Mm. script-wise. Even more so, I would say Ed Wood is really the epitome of that, too, which is a really striking story. It's probably my favorite Tim Burton movie. I threw out a big fish as well. That's right. I, I've, I got a, I've got a soft spot for that. It's it's not doesn't feel like a Tim Burton That's movie as right. much. And let's it, does, <laughs> it does feel like a very personal movie. You're film, absolutely right. Yeah, Big Fish is a really great movie. Yeah. And let's not forget the carefully plotted Mars Attacks. <laughs> oh, Mars Attacks. That was... Greatest. I, I still think only only Tim Burton would would kill off Michael J. Fox that soon. <laughs> yeah, no, that's Michael J. Fox, huh? That yes. movie had everybody in it. Had so. Everybody. Yeah. Oh my gosh. If you weren't in the cast of Mars Attacks at the time, you, you were not hit. Yeah. You know, I I not not to make this about Mars Attacks, but um, I actually get a kick out of that movie. I mean, it is. It's not his best, but just it just goes for it in every way. So. It, it does, yeah. And no. Pierce Brosnan is the best in that. Yeah. Even yeah. with all that cast, he's the one that stands out <laughs> right. to me, which is kind of funny. But yeah, it, it was a sneaky yeah. performance that you didn't expect coming with from him. Uh, very funny in that, like you said, yeah. he's very funny in that. Now I'm thinking about Big Fish. That is Big such Fish. A great movie. It is yeah. a good. You know how this makes me wonder is because Tim Burton is still out there. I mean, you photographs of the guy, you can tell without even mm-hmm. hearing him talk. Mm-hmm. He looks like Beetlejuice. He does kind of. <laughs> I, I mean, think he kind of looks like Edward Scissorhands. It doesn't look like he's Mine ever. Is Scissorhands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does. You know, he's You're got right. the quirky yeah. hair and he always wears black and. Always does, yeah. Well, when I, you're in an industry with Christopher Walken, it's you know, right. <laughs> he, he's probably fairly normal at that point. Normal looking, yeah. I love him though. I like his style. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, I have a lot of respect for. Oh, well, he's he and he's a you know classic filmmaker. I mean, he's he's a visionary. Mm-hmm. 
he is. I mean, I, I read like stories like like the eighties Tim Burton especially is kind of fascinating because I think his best work for me was the period from like Pee Wee's Big Adventure all the way through Ed Wood. Mm. With the exception maybe of Batman Returns, which is a movie I still kind of struggle with. That's like the one exception, but I liked all of the other five films during yeah. that period. And there's a verve and energy with his earlier stuff, and I think the scripts were better, like you said. Right. That become that's been missing for the last twenty years because I feel like he's become more of a brand now. That he's putting out a Tim Burtonish film. I would say that's true. Yeah. yeah, people have certain expectations now. Walking into a Tim Burton movie, you didn't have that, no. uh, and which is what made the Pee Wee movies and, and of course Beetlejuice so novel. As no one had seen anyone anything like that. No. And it, it was wild. It has a go-for-broke style. Yeah. You know. <laughs> it has a... Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It is. You know. <laughs> Tony's eating some chips, so... Yeah, that's... that's right. I'm eating some kettle cooks, She's, salt and, right. salt and vinegar chips. If there's any ambient chip noise, yes, that's where it's coming that's where from. That's where it's coming from. Uh, Girls gotta eat. Exactly. I think Tim Byrne would agree. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. They eat... Well, I'm we're talking about a movie where a guy eats beetles, so it's, like, <laughs> it's not that, that hard to make. This. And a giant fly, don't yeah, forget yeah, that. I don't, so I, disgusting. That doesn't make any sense to me. No, like, I guess the movie. But he also it. he tempts it with a, a like a big like candy bar too. Yeah. It's like flies what they get just so. Weird. Well, he can manif- he can manifest things, but he right. can't manifest his own food. Right. <laughs> Nor does it, he's dead, but he needs to eat. Right. <laughs> I got a lot of questions about. There's a lot of questions I've always had with the the whole afterlife aspect of this movie. Like their their depiction of the afterlife. I mean, I, I love the idea that it's very bureaucratic and it's actually worse in the afterlife than it right. is in the real world. But it, it never distinguishes. Is this heaven or hell or just an afterlife? It's, I think it's fascinating what they're doing here. It's not giving you a cookie cutter view. Yeah. I think it's just an alternate reality. That's mm-hmm. what it really turns out it's to just be. Like, it's like going beyond the looking glass. You know, mm-hmm. you're on the other side, and it's not much different, really, than... I always just think it's fair to, to, to question, is, is it really a movie about the afterlife, or is that just kind of a foil to get us to think about this life and yeah perhaps like mortality and you know what's it all about and you know I also think it's interesting so much of the movie is just one couple trying mm-hmm. to exercise or evict another couple out of their house I mean that's mm-hmm. basically the plot mm-hmm. yeah 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 it is and um and Beetlejuice is just like a catalyst <laughs> yeah well he's the bio-exorcist he's the bio-exorcist he gets rid of the living mm-hmm. so that you- I guess they want to live in that house by themselves forever. Yeah, it's I their house. So. They it's put a lot house. of money and stuff. Yeah. Remember they were talking about it? I, I do have issues, though, where they're like forcing everybody to read this book on the afterlife. Like, read the book. It's in the book. I'm like, that's kind of unfair. You probably should explain right. to people that you're dead. You need to read this book. They just kind of throw it out there and expect you to figure everything out on your own. I mean, that's kind of a... That's kind of life. That yeah, is kind it of is. Life. Yeah, it is. That's it is. Life. You know, it's the Bible. There is no book of life that says, here's what you do in case this happens. <laughs> well, the, well, the thing is, there is a book of death, but that's all they provide. <laughs> so obviously, they are trying to prepare people for And that it's transition. only for the recently deceased, mm-hmm. too. Yes. It's not, you don't get the full mm-hmm. National Geographic or Britannica yeah. set. No, you, know? you don't. No, it's just like a, a, 
like a like a pamphlet almost. Right. Did you know that you can buy the handbook for the recently departed on Etsy? Really? Yes, you can. What's in What's in it? All the things that someone who's recently deceased would need to know. I love it when Alec Baldwin says it reads like stereo instructions. Yeah, that's a great line. (laughs) Speaking of Alec Baldwin. That'd be great if it was stereo instructions. That That would be great. I have to say, I kind of feel like that's the only film I've ever seen Alec Baldwin in where I thought he was a nice guy. Mm. Like his character? Just, yeah. It's one of the, I mean, I remember... Revisiting it late, you know, later and saying, "Oh my goodness, look at how phenomenal Alec Baldwin looked. Well, right. He was such a stud. I mean, not that he's like you know not now, but I mean then. Hello. Well, it was the Baldwin. He was really phase. good looking. Right, yeah. right. This was my first. I think the first time I'd ever seen Alec Baldwin and anything had been Beetlejuice and Gina Davis too. Like mm-hmm. my first impressions of them, and same with Michael Keaton, were all right. kind of formed from this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was really their first major. Well, Gina Davis did the fly. I think a few years before. Yeah, Gina, kind of Gina Davis was well also known. in that other that really ridiculous teen comedy. My girlfriend's from Mars. What was it called? Earth Girls Are Easy. Yes, yeah. that's it. That came out a few years after Beetlejuice. It might have oh, been made that was before. After Beetlejuice? Yeah, but really? it came a couple years after Beetlejuice. When in the nineties then? Yeah, it was nineties. I think. Really? Then why? It. Oh man, that must. Jeff Goldblum might be more disgusting than that. Than <laughs> right. <laughs> Wearing that purple suit. <laughs> that's, that's a Jack Goldblum is a saint. Yeah. He is. I love him. Uh, he can wear a candy bar wrapper. <laughs> that movie's bonkers. Have you ever seen that movie? I know, uh, and I think Scott, I think you told me this once we were talking, that Alec Baldwin said he found he didn't care for the movie mm-hmm. and he thought his role was particularly yeah. bland. Which I don't yeah. disagree. Yeah. With well, him. he's I really mean, a character actor. I mean, that's he was not a, of the movie star mold, you know? Mm-hmm. Really, I don't think that was his thing. No. I, I, I don't think he's bad in this. I, no. I, I think he's, he's fine. I don't think... When you have a character like Beetlejuice, they all can't be... Someone has the to most, be the straight yeah, people. Yeah, they have yeah. to be the straight people. And there's a lot of, you know, more... The family's going to be interesting because you're going to, you know... I mean, I guess I could see it from Alec Baldwin's perspective because the Alec Baldwin that we know now, you know, he normally plays tough guys mm. or there's always a quirk about his character. Yeah. And in this, he, he really is like this yuppie husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he just... He yeah. is a bland character. But, if he were like yeah. an ice cream flavor, he would be like the generic... Store yeah. brand vanilla, right. but that's kind of what the movie needed, though. Like that's. I'm not disagreeing. I'm not yeah, saying yeah. it's not. I'm yeah. just saying I see his point. Yeah, you yeah. Know, especially if you're this really good character actor and you're playing like this yuppie straight man husband, right. you're, I can see why you would look back and say that was probably not mm-hmm. a good yeah. decision. But he got paid. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he got a check. I mean, he got, he got paid, paid, but yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I. I, well, I think Alec Baldwin can be very tough and sourpuss about a lot of stuff. Well, that's... And, yeah. yeah, it's not... This is not unusual for him in the movies he's been in. Right. Yeah. He's a lot of movies. Yeah, uh, but I mean, you know, I will defend him. Oh, no. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. seriously, when you look at a lot of the movies that he's done in his life, you know, since then and where he's at now, and yeah. um, I, I definitely think it, it makes sense, you know, for someone to look back and say, you know, that was not my best work. I mean, I just don't think the character was that interesting, right? Yeah, but that's not a—it's not his fault as an actor. It was just the way that character was designed. There were parameters that he could not cross with it. Like if he started acting like Beetlejuice the whole movie, then it would be overkill. Then you'd be like, "Well, who am I supposed to focus on?" I think the main thing there is—is 
anybody could have played that role. It didn't have yeah. to be Alec Baldwin. No. I think yeah. that's what Alec Baldwin is kind of saying. Yeah, like, it wasn't no. my best performance. It wasn't like, you know, I mean, anybody could have played. No, he did more in 10 minutes of Glengarry Glen Ross than he does in Absolutely. like a round and a half That's here. more of an Alec Baldwin right. role. Yeah. But I, I, I'm going to compliment him in the sense that I think you remember the character because Alec Baldwin is such a good actor and he plays that character so well. And Gina and Davis too. So yes. Yeah. And Gina Davis <laughs> does it because Gina Davis has great expressions. When we're talking about the tearing yeah. off the face, when I watched it recently, I was just like, Gina Davis nails certain looks that Tim Burton goes for and her eyes are so expressive right. mm-hmm. and her comic timing is so sharp that she's able to without drawing a lot of attention to herself she's able to hit all these beats in the movie that I think a lesser actress wouldn't be able to, to hit sure. as well well going back to, to Alec Baldwin and the blandness of the role mm-hmm. I kind of wonder if he's maybe more because the guy is vain He's maybe more upset about like his outfit in the film because it's plaid, right? Yeah, it's, it's kind of like red under. Yeah. yeah, right. He's just a dork. You know, that's he's, what I mean. He's like this, this like submissive kind of like yuppie husband. Yeah. He's always doing whatever Gina Davis tells yeah. him to. Mm-hmm. I could see why a guy like Alec Baldwin would not be happy with that. No, that's yeah, that's not his brand. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 uh, I think. Well, I, I just think that Alec Baldwin's being hard on himself. I think that's what that role he did exact and I think he added things to it that were subtle I mean he did kind of he did it was supposed to be kind of like charming you know he's supposed to be slight subtly charming him and because he he and Gene Davis were probably like they were like the same character they were like Mm -hmm. they represented the same thing as a couple they were more of a character than they were individually because it was about them versus this other you know uh, so I think together they had this like charm and like ability that you had to like them more than like the other mm-hmm. family, because um, the other family was obviously more e- eccentric. Right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Robert Goulet's your friend. You got <laughs> right. So it's Dick Cavett for that on top of that. And so. I mean, yeah. Catherine O'Hara. I mean, right. oh yeah, and She's Jeffrey great. Jones are just. Um, both are amazing. Jeffrey Jones had the the eighties were kind to him. Yeah, yeah he they were filled it. I was looking, like, I'm glad you mentioned that, because I was thinking the other day, it's like Jeffrey Jones and Catherine O'Hara are both a couple in this movie, right. and I said, they were pretty much in every movie from, like, 85 to 95, <laughs> right. like, they were just, they and were parents, ubiquitous, yeah. and, and and we loved them, because, yeah. they, like, Catherine O'Hara, they weren't household names, but they both were always memorable actors, you always remembered Jeffrey Jones and Catherine O'Hara in every film you saw them in, because they're, they're so talented and, mm-hmm. and, and, and great. Yeah, I think Catherine O'Hara is as good a uh, comedic actress as any. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she's up there with, you know, some of the people we've talked about in the past, like, uh, uh, who was the one in Clue that we... Uh, Madeline Kahn. Madeline Kahn. But she's in that, you know, Gilda Radner, she's in that realm, uh, to me. She, she's someone that's, on, like you said, is on the level of some of the top-tier comic actresses of her generation, like Gilda Radner and Madeline Kahn. And I think she is kind of a household name now. I think most people recognize the name Catherine O'Hara. I don't think she really was from a wide audience in the 80s. But she had a cult following because she was on SCTV. Mm-hmm. And everybody from that cast was extraordinarily gifted mm-hmm. comic comedic actors. You had Martin Short, John Candy, and uh, Eugene Levy and all these people. Oh, yeah. Um, and she's a great improvisational actress, too. Like, Catherine O'Hara is one of the top improvisational performers probably in the in the world, you know. Uh, and the scene that everyone remembers with her is the scene at the dinner table when they start, when they're possessed and they're singing the Harry, Harry Belafonte songs. 
<laughs> she's the one that kind of guides everybody Which through that. Which was actually her idea to do those songs. It, it was. Was it really? Mm-hmm. And that changed the flavor of the movie. Yeah. Because that's mm-hmm. people remember those songs immediately when you hear... To think a woman having a good idea. I know. <laughs> what a shock. That's not, that was not what I meant. <laughs> I wonder what what the what yeah, just the, I always thought of that as such a Tim Burton type twist. That he actually was going to have a song by the Ink Dots, really, or Ink Spots, mm. excuse me, the Ink Spots. Yeah, which would have worked. I think it could have worked, but I definitely think the Calypso music gave it even more of an abstract edge yeah. to it. You know, like mm-hmm. jumping the lot. You know, it right, just was right. really goofy for her to be mm-hmm. mouthing this song. <laughs> well, one one thing that Tim Burton did provide is he loves like kitsch. Acting choice, you know, acting, uh, casting choices like uh, Robert Goulet, like we mentioned earlier, and Dick Cavett, yeah. who aren't like they're they're known for other things other than being actors. Essentially, Robert Goulet is like this performer, but there's a kitsch factor to Robert mm-hmm. Goulet, and and Dick Cavett was a talk show host, but they're just a different. And he's actually perfect for being one of. Uh, the friends of uh, the Dietzes because he is a pretentious person himself. <laughs> that that kind of high end Soho Manhattan pretension, he kind of nails that out of the park. You know, that's probably why he was chosen. Uh, that, yeah. That's exactly. He's playing himself in this movie, really. Is, is Charles Dietz a yuppie or is he just more of like he's like the Green Egg? He reminds me of the Green Acres guy. You know, like I'm like out of the city. And go. <laughs> There's a lot yeah. of Green Acres in that. Yeah, dynamic. There is that uh, aspect where he wants to get out of the city and he wants to live in the country. And he's like a he was like a he wanna be yuppie yeah. almost. Yeah, because he's you know like bird watching and then he sees the bird eat something. He's like ew. Yeah, so he's like, <laughs> yeah. like looking at real estate. And he's, yeah. he's just he he's can't not, pull it off. He's not a country person. No, though. like no. Uh, but Catherine O'Hara, she her you know what's her name Delia. Delia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Delia. She, uh, she's definitely more of the. It's she's only going to live in this house if she can change it into something that she wants it to be. She's an artist, yeah. so she wants to express herself. And decorating is an, is a form of artistic expression. That's true. Mm-hmm. And she's a sculptor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she has the same. <laughs> basically, she has the same kind of creative tendencies as. Tim Burton himself. Right. <laughs> really? It's like the woman version of Tim Burton. Yeah. I, I, there must be a self-loathing movie because he clearly identifies more with the, the deets that he does with I the, think the it, that is true. Yeah. yeah between Lydia and, and you know, Catherine O'Hara's character, I mean, those were the most Tim Burton of the, mm-hmm. of the film. Well, people even say like Winona Ryder's character is essentially a female Tim Burton yeah. you know, substitute. I wonder if there's you know like this underlying uh, message in the movie... In, Especially in the late 80s when you had a lot of, you know, you had your conservative, yuppie business people, Mm -hmm. and then you also had your rebellious kind of punks, lower class, other side of the tracks, um, you know, pretty in pink, if you will, that Mm -hmm. kind of setup. But then here you you have that to a big degree. And the nice thing is, is that at the end, you know, these different people come in and they change everything and, you know, um, they completely alter the landscape and then... In the end, you you find that you have the two different uh, styles living harmoniously together as one through Lydia yeah. bringing yeah. them together. Through Lydia, yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. Yeah. yeah, she. I think. I think they definitely want you. They definitely immediately give you an impression of Lydia at the mm-hmm. beginning, and then they slowly reveal aspects of her character throughout. Like you know, she gets upset. You know about mm-hmm. uh, you know. 
they're you know actually harming her family like she says oh I actually yeah. love my family you might not yeah. understand this I'm not just like you know mm-hmm. I just have this, these interests mm-hmm. and then at the end where you know she's kind of they've kind of taken on this mentor world that her own parents don't really mm-hmm. have of her so it's actually so she's got the best her. of both worlds yeah. mm-hmm. no pun intended I could never is Delia really her mother or is it she a stepmother I think she was a stepmom okay, okay. Yeah. A stepmom. What I also like about Delia's character, too, in, in this movie, is that normally in a movie like this, Delia is the villain, and she ends up getting her comeuppance at right. the end. She isn't immediately likable, but she's never vilified completely. Like mm-hmm. she, She's just an eccentric person, essentially, with a lot mm-hmm. of neurotic tendencies, but she... Um, and she doesn't really change her character much, but yeah. I kind of like that. I kind of like that they said, even though she's flawed, she still has redeeming qualities in other ways. It's right. it's it's a different choice than he would make in a Hollywood movie, where she's not the full villain. She's just an eccentric personality. I, and maybe it just works because she's just unapologetically that character. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the storyline, the plot was not for the stepmom to be the villain. No. No. And again, it kind of ties into my theory in that maybe this is a social lesson to us, is that... Stepmoms are mm. not always all evil. No, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be that way. But but, but guys that live in, uh, <laughs> in model homes are. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's actually that. probably exactly. true. Uh, so that means the cast of the rest of the development. Exactly. They live in a model home. I mean, I could be just thinking deep here, but I think that that's an interesting theory given the time that this movie came out. Oh, I would agree. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a film with strong it. female characters. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. we all know how much I love Winona Ryder. Yes, mm-hmm. we do. So I do. And she was filming this simultaneously with The Heathers, mm-hmm. which could arguably be two of her best movies. Yeah. yeah. No. From a fan standpoint. From a fan standpoint. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, Winona Ryder, yes, to your point, I think that her performance is probably better in Heathers than it was in this. Maybe not at the time, wasn't recognized, but I think at this point in time, we can look back and... Say maybe Heather oh, it's better. it's lovely. I love that. Um, it just you know think the comedy is film. A lot of it is very subtle. Mm-hmm. When they first the Dietz's first move in, and obviously Lydia is always depressed. You know mm-hmm. throughout the whole film, and he's trying to Jeffrey Jones is trying to cheer her up. And he's like, yeah, don't worry, honey. We'll build a dark room for you in the basement. You know, you'll fit in mm-hmm. just fine. And it's yeah. like, what is going on? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was a different... I don't think people really got exposed to that. That was like the first time in a mainstream movie that I can remember where the goth right. subculture was kind of, like, uh, you know, represented on right. film. Because I think what The Cure was probably real, was still kind of a cult following in the 80s. Like, I don't think probably. that they were... Unless you were in college and you were really kind of hip to that stuff, I don't think it was really that well known but I think that she here especially like the Lydia character was kind of like what jump started making the hot topic movements in like the 90s and stuff in a way where that brought that stuff more into the mainstream where people were more aware of it right right because then there was a lot of what you would call wannabe goths yeah (laughs) after that they weren't quite goth but they were kind of suburban goths like where they were well I mean I think that that's just a testament to how movies do shape the culture Mm -hmm. especially with fashion like um Clueless in mm-hmm. 1995. I mean, after that movie came out, every girl wanted to dress exactly like Cher and her friends, and I myself am included in that. You know, so I, I definitely think movies have an impact on the culture that follows after. I would mm-hmm. agree. I mean, we got to remember, it came. It's 88 when this is released, so 
this is still Reagan's America. It's, you know, mm-hmm. morning and sunshine in America, or, you know, whatever. <laughs> and then, then you get Beetlejuice. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of sort of like almost indicated where the 90s were going to go in a way. Because mm-hmm. uh, it was just so weird for its time. Yeah, I think that's when I, when I first saw it, like what you mentioned is like when he started saying it was a dark, more of a black comedy than mm-hmm. what... Because it was PG. It wasn't something that... Like, there were probably a lot of movies commenting on that stuff for adults, but there wasn't really a lot of movies aimed at kids that were kind of saying... They're making fun of suburbia the way this movie does, with, like, every house looking the same, and, you know, like, everything's the same, everything's complacent, but underneath it, there's, like, this undercurrent... Like, David Lynch was obviously... Delving into that with Blue Velvet a lot. Oh, absolutely. But kids weren't seeing Blue Velvet. If they were, they would probably. They weren't supposed to. That would be, you know, they probably haven't turned out okay right. in, in subsequent years. That's not fair to say. Hmm? That's not fair to say. What? Why? But if a kid saw Blue Velvet, did it you see? Out did you okay. see it as a kid? <laughs> no, I was only one years old when it came out. <laughs> right. right. No kid is watching a rape scene is probably going to have... <laughs> that would probably be a lot for a kid to take in at five or six years old, I'm Yeah, thinking. but I don't think it's fair to say that it would just be because of that film. That's all I'm oh. saying. That'd be an interesting film to show a kid. We can, uh... Well, I doubt kids are even watching it, but... <laughs> I didn't even know it. I well, we already did well. But... I was, but the point I was making is, like, kids weren't being exposed to a lot of... Like, this movie was kind of poking fun and poking holes, like you said, in suburbia. Right. And like you said, Reagan's America, where everything like on the surface was supposed to be complacent, but this film was kind of, um, um, kind of going into the surface of that and kind of showing like there's like a under weird undercurrent to that, you know, right. like there's might be a lot more depression and things of that nature, and that wasn't really done in a lot of big mainstream Hollywood films at that point. Yeah, and you think also about the portrayal of the afterlife is you know pretty dark. I mean. I think of like the waiting room scene where they're trying to uh, get their see their caseworker or whatever. All yeah. that you guys got what like a shark, like still you know trying to eat off his leg, and then you've got like the that that lady that's been like sawed in half. assistant. I'm right. <laughs> it's like you, they come into <laughs> to death the way they you know they we went they went out of life. Mm-hmm. It's 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 dark I and mean, it's comedic, but it's dark. Well, you have a, also, the, yeah, they make it, like, kind of like a, what do you go into, like, a social work mm-hmm. kind right. of afterlife of, they get, it like, a caseworker, like, yeah. Juno. Right. And I like she, her. Like, yeah, yeah, I like mm-hmm. Juno, too. Juno's great. And she, you know, kind of helps people through, um, I, I guess some of it's haunting. Yeah. I don't know what, you know, I don't know what. Other other ghosts go through like how she helps them out. I guess every case is different. <laughs> I, lo- I love her Just trying like to, to help out like um, uh, that the college football players mm-hmm. they, uh-huh. they don't know yeah. they're yeah. dead. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they're all so stupid. She's like, guys, I'm not your coach. <laughs> yeah, where's the bathroom at? Bathroom, get out of here. <laughs> the one thing I do like about the afterlife too um, that I think Tim Burton did really well is uh, visually a lot of the people in the afterlife are different colors. Mm-hmm. Mm. So they're green or blue or, um, with the exception of Juno, she still looks like a human, yeah. you know, like a regular human. But if, if you, you know, next time you watch it, take note, you'll see that everybody is like a different color and it's almost like they're a cartoon 
Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. During the after that's true. life. So I think that's a good way to help distinguish, you know, the two different worlds. Yeah, yeah, and the only two that Adam and Barbara look normal they look too. Normal. Yeah. And Juno looks normal. Yeah, I don't know what makes you teens color. Maybe it's I don't the know. Tiny. How how did that work out where they looked okay and they drowned? Well, I guess it's because they drowned because they said yeah, that you, you kind of take on whatever killed you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you would think you'd look blue, but I guess because from a movie standpoint, we're supposed to watch them all the time. They were looking right. weird. You know. Also, in that moment when they they do die too, that's a very temperate moment because you remember they're on that bridge, mm-hmm. and the only thing like preventing them from falling over yes. is a beam with a little dog on it. Yes, the dog jumps off. Dog so it's like fall. they die because of the dog. Uh huh. And the only reason they even swerved was to avoid hitting the dog. Hitting the dog yeah. in the first place. Yeah. So if they would have just either hit the dog or whatever, right. yeah, exactly. And then the yeah. Right. And Tim Burton's world, it's a bum rap to be, mm-hmm. you know, nice people. Yeah. <laughs> it's not end well for you. No, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. Yeah, it, it is. I didn't notice that when we were watching it last time. Um, that death, I just remember how, because you go immediately from there that they open up the door and they walk in. So I don't think they want you to really dwell on the fact that how they die or, yeah. or that they're dead or make it a sad, you know, thing. I think they wanted to make... Oh, they died. Now they get this afterlife, and that's the most important thing: is that they're dead, and they go through this experience. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so that was always interesting with the way they how he did the death. Like it was kind of whimsical, kind of fun with the dog. And even when they're about to die, they're like, no, no, no. You know, it's, it's not like fear. It's just like, no, no, no. You know, it's well, like, and even after they're dead, they're so nonchalant about it. It's <laughs> yeah. like, that's like I Adam, say. I think we're dead. Yeah. He's like, really? Yeah. Okay. They didn't even realize they died. And I think they wanted the audience to not realize they died either until yeah. they went to the they were in the same afterlife. Yeah. All because you want to pick up some paint or some glue. Right. Yeah. For a house. Yeah, I like to see that obsession he has with building the town, you know, like he's just obsessed with making this replica of the whole town. Right. Which is interesting. And then the irony of then, you know, Jeffrey Jones coming in and he's like, because he's the real estate mogul, he's like, oh, this is great. And he just just (laughs) takes it out of the attic. With Oprah. We haven't even talked about Oprah. Oh, no, no. He's hilarious in it. Yeah. As the... uh, He's the most, uh, I don't even know, like a super yuppie or a super... He, he, <laughs> it's hard to explain his character. He's not really yeah. a yuppie because yeah, he's, 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 in, he's into the art scene. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of bills himself as like an expert on the occult. I love that line where he <laughs> says, you know, I was a you know master or whatever at the occult until the bottom fell out in 78. <laughs> it's like, what, is, what are you talking about? Like, it was a cottage industry of some kind. Yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, it's just, he has those little lines. Uh, I also thought it was, like, kind of interesting going back to the book for the recently deceased that there's a chapter on exercising mm-hmm. the dead. Why would you give that to the, rec- like, the recently deceased? Like, oh, here's how you yourself again it actually makes sense that he would be into the occult because those people are very trendy and whenever right. there's a certain trend coming on right. in, in, in soho or something like that they're probably going to leach on to <laughs> immediately mm-hmm. so that's probably what happened like you said the 78 yeah. it was probably like just one of many things otho was trying his hand yeah yeah he uh i like it when he's going through the house with uh delia and they're just spray painting walls to get rid of or right mm-hmm. or marking them and um, um 
then that's when Charles is like, I want this office. And that's like, that's like the moment. Like, I want this to be exactly as it is. You know, not make something modern or fashionable out of the rest of the house. And that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a great scene, too, because that is when they're, uh, Gina Davis and Alan Paul, they're trying to scare them around. They don't realize they can't see them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they open up the closet, mm-hmm. and she's, like, hanging herself. Yeah. And, that's, like, a great joke. It's right. like, oh, my God. And it's like she's making fun of the hideousness of the clothes. <laughs> right. not yeah. That's, that's a fun part. But, uh, yeah, it's... It, it is interesting that it's you know they just want they built they want their own home that they built they don't want anybody else you know to ever be there uh, the problem is that they have Beetlejuice there too right. <laughs> it's not like yeah. just them they have Beetlejuice is hanging out too and that just, he's worse he just, yeah. just, just kind of like moves in too yeah yeah, yeah. he just kind of comes in there because he's looking for business essentially right. and um, makes you wonder was he always there in that in that model community well, there you is know, that like scene in the early on where he's he's checking whatever newspaper mm-hmm. that dead people read, oh, and he's yeah. he's looking for the work, orbit. right? Yeah. And he's, he's like, oh, he looks, at, he sees yeah. the cop, and he's like, oh, they look like a bunch of suckers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, he he really is just kind of a con, like you said, a con man. Yeah. I guess the original version of the script, though, like the whole movie was going to be more of a straight out horror film. Like the the Beetlejuice was gonna be a weather leather winged demon. I heard something about that. Yeah, and I guess the the Dietzes had a younger daughter who was like six years old, and I guess the scene in the original script had Beetlejuice turning into a rabid squirrel that starts mauling this kid and, and killing it. So this had to have been R-rated. I mean, right. and, and there was a scene where I guess Lydia instead of trying to marry her, he tries to rape her in it. And I'm just like, that would not have been the same movie in any way. I, I think that turning into a more comedic route, yeah. I, I, even as a horror film, that seemed kind of extreme when I was reading some of that stuff. Um, not that I'm the biggest horror aficionado, but... Yeah, that would be a completely strange <laughs> movie. I, I mean, I, that would just seem like any other horror movie to me, you know, as yeah. opposed to this, which is like the comedy horror, where yeah. it's really this new... To see what this depiction of the afterlife, you know, like it's the afterlife is very similar to our life. Right. Just, yeah. They have paperwork. And <laughs> they right. people have jobs, and mm-hmm. you know, I don't even know how you get one of those jobs working in those uh, case, you know, those whatever they would call the afterlife. You know, I don't know right. what that building is. It's like social workers. Yeah. I don't know yeah. what it is, but yeah. And you got the sandworms from. I mean, it's just kind of. I just, it's just this weird yeah. mishmash of like that's like straight out of Dune. You've got these yeah. giant sandworms, yeah. and but they're also, you know, claymation, so they're not really scary. Yeah, they're just kind of. Well, you got Dune, and you got Tremors. Right. <laughs> that was like I don't know how many movies in the eighties had sandworms. Yo, that's true. Like three prominent movies. But it's also just like kind of like one of those again offbeat things about that movie that the reason you can't leave your house is because it's surrounded by a desert with sandworms, giant sandworms that will eat you. Yeah. Who thinks of stuff like this? Yeah, I know it, it. It is all over the map, and it looks like it went through a variety of different screenwriters Probably, to get to that point. Yeah. Um, so it, it went. In fact, the guy I think his name was Michael McDonald, and I think he was the first guy to start writing McDowell I think was his last name mm-hmm. and he was an executive and he was doing really well at Universal and he brought the script in the original 
draft we were talking about for Beetlejuice. And the guy calls him at the office, is like, what are you doing? You're, you're, <laughs> this is strange crap. <laughs> Nobody's ever going to buy this stuff. And, you know, you're going to ruin your career because you're doing really well as an executive and yeah. stuff. You have great tastes, so don't waste your time with this. But then he sold it to Geffen and uh-huh. it became this huge hit. So, you know, for him, it was probably a a coup. Yeah, could have been. Yeah. I don't, what did this movie make at the box office here? I want to say seventy-five million. Okay. Yeah, that's what I read. I mean, for too. that and for that time, that was a big deal. That yeah. was like we're used to movies crossing over a hundred million without now, beating. Yeah. You know, when you look at the reports back then, getting to a hundred million or close to it was a massive hit. Like if you adjusted it for inflation, I'm sure it would be like in like maybe two hundred million or so to by today's Probably. standards. Yeah, it only cost fifteen and made like you said seventy-three point seven million. So it was a hit. Yeah, it really put Tim Burton on the map. Mm-hmm. You know, this was right before he directed Batman, so mm-hmm. he was. Which is interesting too, because uh, you know, people actually really forget. You know, they don't remember this. A lot of people really incensed that he cast Michael Keaton. Oh yeah, as Batman, because I mean, he's just Beetlejuice, and he was known as a comedic actor. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, if you look back now, he's actually one of the most highly regarded mm-hmm. guys that played Batman. Oh yeah, and yeah. He was my first real the first Batman to really grab me and made me pay attention to that yeah. character now when you watch Beetlejuice in this movie he's one of the rare actors that could play both Batman yeah, and the Joker because <laughs> yeah. Beetlejuice is, a, is the Joker essentially in a lot of ways you know with the character beats and stuff right and all that manic energy and you know Nicholson is another guy well he couldn't play Batman I can't see Nicholson no, as Batman I don't think so. that's the, the difference but Keaton could play both and yeah. Bruce Wayne, don't forget that. Yeah, uh, that's versatility. Yeah, that is versatility. Um, this was a big year for him because he did Beetlejuice, a movie called Clean and Sober, the same year, which got oh. a lot of critical acclaim. It was his first major dramatic role. He's playing a drug addict, a yuppie drug addict, okay. and it's an excellent performance. So I think '88 was a year where Keaton was like, boom. No, he's on the. He, he's, yeah, I think this is Pete Keaton. I think. Like you said, you talked about Tom Hanks and uh, uh, some other people um, of the time. I, who else was the... Uh, well, there was Tom Hanks, Michael Keaton Light, and Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> or Bill Murray. Like, yeah. You know, those, those leading man with the dark hair. Um, but this is like, you know, when Michael Keaton, be, I think, became a huge star. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he was a star before this, but obviously these two years, 89 and 88, this was, you know off the map and it's interesting like five years later he's not in anything really mm-hmm. <laughs> you know he just kind of fades away for that's because a new crop came in yeah mm-hmm. it's interesting because he's so good he was so unique you know you think he'd get on get all these you know supporting roles at, at the very least you know Beetlejuice was just so out there in that character mm-hmm. I mean when you, if you're, you're I don't know if you're an executive watch someone play that you're like I don't know what to do with this guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, and also, he's not just like a use, he's really creepy character, too. You know? Well, I was actually. Uh, is it just like a pervert? Yeah, he is. Mm-hmm. Um, I was watching uh, this like thing when Michael Keaton uh, was talking about the character of Beetlejuice and he was talking about the movie and he originally turned it down. Mm. But he said he really liked Tim Burton as a person a lot. So that way he like agreed to meet with him again to learn a little bit more about it. Um, and even told Tim Burton, you know, can I have like a couple of days to think about it? You know, I'm just, 
And Tim Burton was like, yeah, you know, and he's like, you know, think about it, you know, bring your ideas. And so um, Michael Keaton thought about it and thought, okay, well, I'm only in the film for like 20 minutes or less. It's not, I think they filmed all of his scenes in like two weeks. Really? And then they were done with Michael Keaton, like that was it. So he's like, oh, what do I got to lose? You know, that kind of thing. So him and Tim Burton worked on kind of curating his look and the way that he was. Um, and then that was that. Like, Michael Keaton was pretty nonchalant about it. I mean, the mo- like, he didn't really think it was going to be a big hit. You know, he just right. was like, I, mm-hmm. at best, I have a cameo. Like, yeah. you know, because really, I mean, that's what it kind of is. But, so, you know, it's mm-hmm. hysterical, too. Of course, the end of the movie, it's, I don't, I forget the plot of how it ends up, but he's about to marry Lydia. And, you know, that weird guy that, like, he looks like a skeleton or whatever. Um, you know, asks him, you know, do you take this woman to be your lawful oh, yeah. wife? Mm-hmm. And then he cuts away, and he's like, "Wow, you know, I really can't. I, I don't know. It's a big decision." Yeah, and yeah. It's just, like, I always said if I was going to do it, I was going to do it once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and then when he takes out the ring too, it's mm-hmm. it's off of the dead thing finger. And he says, yeah. Lydia, I'm telling you, baby, she meant nothing to me. <laughs> exactly. Nothing to me." One That's of my favorite. One of my favorite uh, lines is when he goes, uh, he. He does the uh, carnival thing with Robert Goulet where they, they right. you know, sends him over the over the walls, and he goes, uh, "Oh, I do it once. That's why I only do one show per day now, folks." <laughs> it's right. like it's all the showbiz, you know, right. lingo that he uses. It's and hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Apparently, he ad libbed a lot of his lines. Yeah, that does not surprise the, me. Yeah, uh, the Juilliard line. Oh like, yeah, when he when Alec Baldwin when they first meet him and yeah. Alec Baldwin's like asking him his credentials and then <laughs> he actually stops talking like Beetlejuice and talks in the real Michael Keaton voice and he's like, Well, you know, I'm graduated Harvard Business School, attended Juilliard <laughs> and uh, traveled extensively. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Michael Keaton did graduate from Harvard Business and yeah. he did go to Juilliard, like so he's like being himself in that brief moment. That's funny. Um, which I always thought was kind of fun. <laughs> I saw Exorcist 167 times and it Keeps getting in front of her every time I see it. Yeah. <laughs> right. I like it when he, he jumps on Alec Baldwin's uh, Adam in the, in the movie and he, he has the same clothes on his face. Right. See, you and I, we dress alike in everything. We shop at the same store. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> what do I got to do to impress you people? Yeah, it's an amazing performance. Um, sometimes when an actor goes over the top, especially in comedies, it can get grating after a while yeah. with certain actors. But with him, it doesn't. Although I watched a review with Siskel and Ebert, and they hated the character of Beetlejuice. Really? I mean, their whole review is essentially saying this guy is like a like somebody that you get tired of very quickly. And and I was like amazed because the whole rant was really about how irritated they were with the character of Beetlejuice and how obnoxious he was. And I'm like, well, I think he's supposed to be obnoxious. I think that was yeah. the whole point of the character. Yeah, and it, I think the fact he's only in it twenty minutes really right. every it hits home. But yeah. he's you can. He doesn't overshadow the story or, or the other actors for the majority of it. And when he's there, that's what he's supposed to do is overshadow them and right, dominate yeah. them. So I think it's it's great. He's only in it for 20 minutes, but I think that's the right decision. Yeah. 20 yeah. minutes is kind of yeah. enough. And yeah. It's, more more it's, than that. And especially for a movie that's only an hour and a half. And yeah. It's, it's not a long movie. No. No, it's it's actually like you said, it's pretty short. It's just seemed to, I remember it being longer it as a kid. It felt like that as a kid, yeah. Yeah. Maybe just because as a kid, it's like you have no idea what's going to happen next. Yeah. yeah. It keeps you on the on the edge of your seat because it is an unpredictable right. film. You know, the beats go all over the place. Another aspect of this movie I want to touch base is Danny Elfman's score, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
when I first saw it, the score stood out for me because it, you know, kind of Pee Wee's Big Adventure had a similar vibe too, but this felt like a like a fuller scale, uh, just jaunty, and it just it wasn't a typical film score you would hear at that time. I think we were more accustomed to like a John Williams type score for most things, and this stood out. Yeah, I would agree. That or kind of you know more like a John Hughes with you know the sort of sound eighty soundtrack idea. But, yeah. Yeah. But not with you know those grating violins and the percussion and mm-hmm. it was definitely a very different uh, kind of score. Yeah. But appropriately so, right? Yeah. I think it also lends um, to feeling like you're in a fun house or an amusement park. Yes. There's yeah. that quality to it where you're like, okay, this is like a theme park. Kind yeah. of, you know, it's it's the ups and the downs and the bomb, bomb, bomb. You know, like the mm-hmm. loudness to it. No, that's absolutely exactly how I feel about it too. It's it's uh, it has it's very percussive. There's a lot of percussion mm-hmm. and, and changes, just like you said. Yeah. It gives you that fun house because it is a fun house, especially at the end with the carnival stuff oh, going yeah. on. It fits beautifully yeah. in there, or even like a loony, a cartoon. Like mm-hmm. it feels like the score for like a a cartoon short yeah. in a way too. Right. You know, yeah. It's- yeah, and I think that goes to, like you said, the length, you know, an hour and a half. Is, it, it has comedy length, animation length. You know, right. And it's both of those things. And um, I think Danny Elfman, too, is a genius as a musician. And, and I think um, Tim Burton was really smart early on to, to latch on to Danny Elfman to give him the sound for his style and his brand. Mm-hmm. And I think it's always a wise thing when directors do that. You know, when they yeah. find a musician that they like... Because there's such an importance, and I always say it on the podcast, for me anyway, there's such an importance between the marriage of the music and, and the motion and what you're you know, seeing and feeling and how the music kind of ties everything together. And I think Danny Elfman is always hits the mark with Tim Burton films. Yeah. You know? And each one is unique and each sound is a little bit different. But at the end of the day, if I were in the kitchen cooking and I hear... Danny Elfman music I'm going to say oh you're watching a Tim Burton movie right mm-hmm. you know and I think that that's a really cool thing um, there you know there's maybe a dozen or so that I'm aware of directors that tend to do that they work with the same people and they use the same composers and I, personally I think that's a really smart mm-hmm. um, way to help build and identify your brand and kind of set you apart a little bit oh I 100% agree and actually I don't think it's too bold a thing to say is would Tim Burton be as respected as a director without Danny Elfman because mm-hmm. he scored I think yeah. almost all of his movies yeah. I think Tim Burton has lucked which I guess it's not luck I think it's successful people can identify certain right. elements right off the bat but even the production designer he worked with a lot named Bill Welch who did the, the production design for this movie he needed people that got the idiosyncrasies of him right. and who he was and I think Danny Elfman and Tim Burton are almost a symbiotic relationship, you know, where they they needed each other to kind of steer them where they needed to go. I mean, I feel like John Williams and Steven Spielberg have a similar relationship. That's very good, yeah. Yeah. Um, like, Spielberg movies without John Williams, they kind of, like, oh, something's missing here. Like, you know, I'm, I, I kind of need that John Williams score. Well, it's the same with Tim Burton when, when Danny Elfman isn't working with them. It's like, this needs something, you know. It's not the same. It's not the same, it no. The same. It's a branding thing, almost. It's like almost. you're finding the right people that, yeah. you know. Can I say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, 
There's a lot of uh, composers that work with the same director. I think it, you're lucky right. if you find someone that really is in tune with you. Uh, same thing for actors. You're lucky yeah. if you find a group of actors that get your style, that you get along with, that, you know, um, as a director or writer, you can write and direct roles for them, mm-hmm. you know. That's and that's definitely true with uh, Burton. I mean, you obviously Johnny Depp, but Helen, Helen, you know, Hel- Helena Helen Bonham Carter, yeah. yeah. Um, too, it's kind of like his yeah. muse for a while. I mean, they, weren't they married? They were married they for were, a while, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's almost like Johnny Depp like moved in and put right. Michael Keaton out of the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Michael Keaton did three movies. If Winona and Johnny Depp got married and didn't break up, she probably would have stayed on that yeah. board as well. Probably because she did a couple movies with him. Yeah, she did. Yeah, That's she true. Did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think she fell into that vein of understanding. She got that dark humor and that mm-hmm. oddness. You know, I think that was something that Yeah, I was, I was actually surprised they didn't work more together. Mm-hmm. Because they only made those two films. I think people have the impression that they made more movies together as a result because they were so mm-hmm. ingrained in people. But they only made those two films together. Well, I think the reason they didn't work more together is Johnny Depp. That's probably what it is. Yeah, yeah. probably. I mean, you know, yeah, oh, that's right. They, they dated, didn't they? They were engaged. That makes sense. They were going to get married, and then when it fell through, you know, I mean, I don't know the specifics, obviously, but you're not probably going to want to do a bunch of movies with your ex-fiance <laughs> if it didn't maybe end on good terms. And if you're Tim Burton, you've got this knockout star, Johnny Depp, and you've written roles for him or whatever the case is. I don't know. It makes yeah. me sad because, yeah. you know, I love Winona Ryder, um, and I think she could have been really great and some of his other things but she still did her mm-hmm. now she's back with Stranger Things yeah yeah. everybody from this movie is having kind of a resurgence now like Michael yeah. Keaton's in the middle of a oh, huge absolutely. resurgence mm-hmm. uh, Johnny has gone through a bad yeah not, the one guy that was not, successful he's not in this movie no, he's not he's not, oh yeah, yeah you're right yeah. you're right yeah I meant we were just talking about Johnny the only one who really like fell off the map is, is Gina Davis oh I agree which yeah. was kind of surprising because I really felt like she did great in a league of their own and She's a great actor, and I felt like she had well, a lot of promise. Thelma and Louise, I think. Yes, and Thelma and Louise. And then it's just like after, you know, I don't know, the 90s. You, I think she... I don't know what she's happened. She's kind of resurrected a little bit in, like, things. Let's see here. But compared to Winona oh, Ryder yeah. and Michael Keaton and even Alec Baldwin with the Donald Trump mm-hmm. stuff, everybody in this movie right. is having, like, this big moment now. Well, I Alec realized. Baldwin's still... He acted consistently, though. I mean, he was in, like, yeah. Party yeah. He's been in a lot of movies. He may not have yes. star, like he may not have been a starring person, but I felt like he's maintained a steady career, like Johnny Depp. Right. Oh, very consistent. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. Catherine O'Hara, although you don't see her as often now, she yeah. works steadily, she too. Works, yep. Yeah. It's easier, I think, for character actors to work steadily than stars anyway, because I think they're noted for just playing characters. They don't have the baggage attached to them that's, that stars sometimes get. But uh, yeah, Winona Ryder had her much lesser legal problems, you know, with the shoplifting right. thing, which I, you know, I felt, you know, maybe that hurt her career for a while, you know, because I think there's so much negative attention attached to that. I think a lot of people felt like, why would a movie star need to rob... Well, you know. I mean, why would a movie star need to watch child pornography? No, there's no reason for it. But you know, it's a compulsion. she's a woman, she, she gets more heat on her than a guy would on him. Okay. If it were a guy that shoplifted, people would just laugh it off. Oh, this Jack Nicholson shoplifting. <laughs> you probably have. But, <laughs> but because, no, seriously, yeah. but because it's a woman, I think women... Um, take more heat on stuff like that. Oh, that there's actually a legitimate proof for what you're talking about. Yeah. Jack Nicholson destroyed that car with a golf club. He wasn't Oh, I remember that. Yeah, and he and he's a hero. Vacation. Exactly. He's a hero. 
right. Winona Ryder steals, you know, a twenty dollars sweater from the Gap, and she's a criminal. No, well, there's definitely she, some sexism. She definitely owned up to it. I she mean, sure she, did. She she did all the rounds and apologized and got me. I mean, she got me. I think the the public outcry was probably worse than her actual punishment, you know, from legally, you know, and it was very. I think it was overkill. I do too. Well, I hundred percent agree with you because I feel like with female stars, not to go too much on a side tangent with it. But around that same time, Meg Ryan got shit for her affair with Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe's well, career it, thrived. It killed her career. And it killed her career. Yeah. So yeah. there was two examples let's, of that let's same Let's go back time. to Eddie Fisher, Liz Taylor, and Debbie Reynolds, shall <laughs> yeah. we? Yeah. We will. We could. We could. I mean, it's the same thing. Eddie Fisher looks like a hero. Yeah. Coming out in the end when he's a sleazeball. Now, Angelina Jolie was the exception. She actually thrived from her scandals. Like, she became a bigger star, almost. So, so. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of backlash there. The whole Team Jen, Team Angelina, like, there was mm. a lot. But Brad Pitt, the main thing, nothing affected him. No, he still, and he was the one who really was the problem, and, you know? Yeah. like Dennis Quaid gets off scot-free. <laughs> and Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe's career thrived because of that affair. Yeah. Like, he actually became a bigger star. You know, and that's uh, great really actor. Sad because but... it's like, let's go one to my one, one of my all-time favorites, Ingrid Bergman, got shunned from America because right. she had an affair with Roberto Rossellini. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's just say that's a problem, <laughs> all right? I mean... Men cheat on you know women all the time, and they look like the heroes. A woman does it, and she's oh my goodness, we we have to ban her from the country. Well, look at Catherine Hepburn and, and uh, Spencer Tracy. Yeah, Spencer Tracy never even divorced his wife. He just lived with Catherine Hepburn. I'm not going to touch base on Roma Polanski or Woody Allen right now. Oh yeah, my God. yeah, <laughs> that's, that's Woody the Allen is yeah. way worse. Yeah, ten, dating his stepdaughter or whatever is going it, on with him, it, it, but yeah. he's a famous. He's amazing. Yeah. Now they don't view him as child pornography. Uh, no, I think a lot of people would say that guy's maybe not that bad, but he's... It's taken years. years. Yes. It's taken years, but now it's like, like, oh yeah, he's kind of... His movies are... People forgive people if they like what they do. Right. I mean, that's it's the unfortunate, an unfortunate aspect of our society. If you do something that people enjoy, you're going to get a lot of leeway on it. Yeah. And if you're a man, you get even more. So it's like... Like, like Marilyn always gets... Shot down. JFK had the affair yeah. too. It goes yeah. both yeah, ways. JFK was you know? a horn yeah, yeah. You know, Johnny Depp now is starting to get some heat for certain things, but it mm-hmm. took a few years for that to really become uh, a major problem for him as a star, you know, where people were starting to believe it more and more. And I think, get back to your point, it's like we, there's an undercurrent with some of these things, and I think it's sexism where. I don't even know what it is, but there's something about Winona Ryder that people were just ready to trample on her. I think it's just like, oh, this privileged person is stealing. For some reason, that bothers people more than, like, Jack Nicholson destroying a car because it's like, oh, that's cool. That's what Jack does. He's he's a rebel. Jack Nicholson essentially had a breakdown. And yeah. that's why he broke down. Britney Spears had a breakdown in 2007, and people still joke about it. She basically yeah. did the same thing he did. <laughs> yeah. She attacked a paparazzi person, right. and yet he's a hero, and people laugh about it and praise him. And she's, oh my God, somebody sent her to a mental hospital. Yeah. Yeah. She's off the rails. Yeah, it's good that she's kind of actually working. Oh, yeah, she's it. got a residency in Vegas. Yeah, she's, she's doing amazing. Well, yeah. So Britney's getting the last laugh on y'all. And but. I think Winona's kind of, I think people have kind of embraced Winona again. I think that's good to see, you know. She I like her regardless. Yeah, yeah you like her regardless. She's my girl. But, you know, for people that were probably, I don't, you know, there's probably some people that don't remember that. I mean, it was Maybe, 18 yeah. years ago, but. Um, where she was making yeah. faces during the Stranger Things thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. People, people love I mean, she's mm-hmm. 
she's very likable person. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, yeah. So it's good well, she to suffered see. from some mental problems. Yeah. Too. She had really severe depression and other things. I mean, I'm not using that as a crutch for her actions, but you never know. I mean, you know. But she's all, she's been very vocal and transparent about that, and I, I have a lot of respect for people who can own up to. Well, how how old was she when she made Beetlejuice and Heather? She was 17. See, and that's another thing. That is, yeah. you can imagine that kind of, that level of fame and adulation. Right. To kind of be the woman or the young woman of your generation, so to speak. And like we touched back base with we touched with this earlier is that Winona Ryder started representing a certain sublet movement of you know, Ali Sheedy kind of was the first time and that was the John Hughes version of that, which is not that strong really. Like she was just an eccentric really different it's Winona has that it factor. Some people just have it. The look or the style or the, the the air about him, Winona has it, and I don't think Ali Sheedy did. No, people Alex... liked Winona; they could relate mm-hmm. to her. She wasn't overly beautiful, but she was attractive. She was smaller. There was like this underdog, mm-hmm. every girl quality about Winona Ryder, where I don't think Ali Sheedy really had. Ali Sheedy looked like she was acting. Yes, and yeah. I don't mean this in yeah. I, I think it was fine. I think she, Ali Sheedy's a good actress. I just yeah. think. Winona just felt like she was that person mm-hmm. in this movie. Like, there was no... Even like, in Heather's. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's just the way she talks. She can talk in that kind of... Which is interesting because yeah. you see work that she's done now. Like, you see she's having a bit of resurgence. It's not true. She's actually a very fantastic actor. Mm-hmm. And has yeah. a lot of you know, great range. Mm-hmm. But it was at that time, I think, almost... It felt like her also kind of... She's sort of... Fell into that character, so to speak. Who, Alan Sheedy, or what? Winona. Yeah, and I think there was a movie about seven years ago, Black Swan, with Natalie Portman, and oh, yeah. Winona Ryder played like her, uh, like I think predecessor, predecessor right? Her predecessor. Yeah. And I felt that that was a great casting coup because Winona Ryder was kind of, I mean, Natalie Portman's not really Winona Ryder. It's not an exact comparison. She's a no. sunnier personality, I think, for in some ways, but. It's like the old actress being replaced by another actress. There's that all about Eve dynamic going uh, on in, in the ballet well, part of that movie. The I thought that was a great casting. The thing too. about uh, getting back to Beetlejuice is that for the role of Lydia, Winona Ryder actually was not the first choice. They wanted to have Juliette Lewis, who was really big at the time. They even auditioned Brooke Shields, Sarah Jessica Parker, Jennifer Conley, Molly Ringwald, and Rory Lachlan, all for the role. And I don't know if those women, they just, they just maybe didn't like something about them or whatever it was. But um, but I think they asked um, Winona Ryder, and she originally said no because she was doing Heathers. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, she ended up doing it. Mm. The, Lori Laughlin, the, the lady from Full House. Yeah. Was like, well, I could see why she didn't get that role. Yeah. Right. She's too classically pretty to yeah. fit that. Juliet Lewis, I can see. Juliet Lewis, I find it very hard to imagine anyone else playing that part. It was probably obvious who they were going to cast once she stepped in. Right. You know, that happens with a lot of roles. Yeah. It's like yeah. that's that's our that's, right. that's our Lydia. Yeah. I always wonder about like because you you go on IMDb and you see a lot of people. You know, people post like, "Oh, this person was up for it." You like to see who was really in the consideration. Oh, like, like the final five or yeah, something. Like Juliet Rulis, like based on she honey, was the second exactly. Juliet Rulis yeah. was. Yeah, and I think that's. And you could tell. I think yeah, you could tell. Yeah. yeah, someone like Lori Loughlin, someone's like, how about Lori Loughlin? She's hot. <laughs> well, no, I just said she auditioned. Yeah, exactly. My yeah, point yeah. is, there's a lot of younger stars, up-and-coming stars, who are, ended up being big or were big yeah. prior. This was like a coveted thing. Like, people wanted yeah. this role. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's well, a very unique role for for yeah. uh, especially for female roles at the time that had a lot of character and personality yeah. and it was different from what you would expect, which was not common. You know, it wasn't a common. It wasn't role. like the pretty leading lady. Like a lot of the girls who auditioned, obviously, he, it's out of the it's out of the norm for the things that they were doing, which is probably maybe what attracted them to it. Yeah, which is kind of a sad comment, but I mean, that kind of role and I mean, can you think? In our day and time of comic book movies and stuff, no one would have a movie out with a character like a, a Lydia or even mm-hmm. Catherine O'Hara as being big parts of the story, you know? No. And it wouldn't be a big hit. It'd be more like an indie film or something. Yeah, yeah it's the, the kind of idiosyncratic films have been moved more towards the independent circuit right. now. Or even TV. Like, yes. Stuff like Netflix and things like that. I don't know why that shifting has occurred, yeah. but it, it's there. Um, I'll tell you why. Money. Yeah. Michael Bay blockbusters make money. Yeah. yeah. They're not good or as good. Mm-mm. But that's what makes money. I think they're pretty bad. I'm sorry. I'm I not, do too. Not a that's why. That's no, why I'm saying. Either. That's why I had to correct myself because I don't want to offend <laughs> nah. anyone. But but my point <laughs> well, I have is no is, problem offending anyone. About you know, Michael I just Bay. think. Um, I mean, that's really like. I mean, it's no secret, and I know you guys are huge superhero fans, and I like them to an extent. But there's an oversaturation in that kind of stuff in the movie market today. There's not enough of this mm-hmm. stuff, like Beetlejuice, or you know, or the yeah, abstract and I think that's been a big criticism lately is that there's there's a lot of the big movies and there's a lot of small movies but there hasn't been a lot of these 25 million dollar Beetlejuice movies that they're making mm-hmm. you know because you get a lot because I think that's what you had got in the 80s you would get a lot of the big movies but you got a lot of these smaller quirkier movies mm-hmm. but had studios behind them yeah. they weren't like independent films yeah, right. yeah. um Television's taking a lot of that slack. Like Stranger Things probably would have been a $25 million movie. You know. Um, Maybe. Or, well, it depends. Yeah. I don't know if it was written for a show or not. It was written for the show, yeah. but in the past, those those kind of ideas yeah. would have been like Beetlejuice. And, and you wouldn't have seen a show like Stranger Things in the 80s or 90s because no. it was considered low budget and. Television was what? Yeah. Television was predominantly not as good as it is today. No. No. It was just cheesy sitcoms. Family sitcoms, like that was what it really was. But the big movies are better today now, but you just don't have these studios aren't making these smaller movies mm-hmm. anymore. It's either independent or a big movie. You know, you do have some smaller movies, but they're either horror movies. Right. Either like they make horror movies or they make, mm-hmm. you know, they make. It's yeah. very targeted to a specific mm-hmm. demographic. Yeah. 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 So you. Yeah. I would like to Which see I think more. is sad. Like, I think the world needs more All About Eves today. It needs more Sunset Boulevards. It right. needs more content. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Mm. By content, you mean like, like more? Like quality writing, quality scripts, good actors, mm-hmm. not just big budget blockbusters because right. Michael Bay feels like making another movie and that's what sells. Yeah. No, they're terrible. Like that type of stuff. I would say that the Marvel stuff, they are character driven. That's why I think those movies have done yes. better than most. That's you know, true. like the. Because the comic book, the specific superhero films, they um, are drawn from a wide variety of stories that have taken place over the years. So a lot of those are really character-driven, which is why I think they're better than, let's say, the Michael Bay films. But the bigger problem, I think, is the franchising has become... 
It's like theaters only can handle spectacle anymore. They can't handle smaller films because people don't want to spend that much money to go see. Like, if they're going to go to a theater, they want spectacle. Right. Which is bad, like she's saying, because that you're not getting the All About Ease and you're not getting the Sunset Boulevard types, those idiosyncratic These, projects. Well, you're yeah, like, like, not getting used to get. Like quality movies. And that's like something. Like an actual movie, not just a. Well, the, just a, but, you know, a CGI fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, any any film with the you know female leading characters, and Wonder Woman is just was a, a total anomaly. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that was actually a good movie. Right. Right. That's the, like that's the, the content, the quality of that movie was good. Um, but it just makes me sad when we talk about movies like Beetlejuice because they're so far and few nowadays, and I feel like the it's those movies that really carry on a lot of the values. That's at the heart of actual like movie making. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know these good characters, these good scripts, these fantastic directors and I I agree. And actually, actually, when I was watching uh, Beetlejuice recently, I was just you know kind of blown away because I thought well, you know the cast is amazing, the, the yeah. script mm-hmm. is is great. Obviously, the score we've talked about that, uh, the performances, the mm-hmm. direction, and there's just really not anything. About it, it's not too much I can really criticize or, yeah. you know. I mean, it's it's a solid film. It is. Yeah. It, it's perfect. I think Tim Burton himself has strayed away from some of that lately. Yeah. Like I, oh, I, yeah. I feel like he because I think he's trying to keep up. It probably is in some ways. I mean, look at the quality of the Alice in Wonderland movie and something like this, where right. he had the freedom and the the backing to do what he really wanted versus versus you better make this much money from this movie. Which is probably the pressure that he was getting from the Alice in Wonderland stuff, and and you compare them, and mm-hmm. I mean you see it, the qual- you know right. you, mm-hmm. you see it, yeah. And I think that that's sad. But what makes me sad is because eventually people like Tim Burton are going to get old, or they're going to quit, or they're going to move on, um, and you won't even even have any of that, you know. Yeah, hopefully that. Doesn't I mean, I'm not. Happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's. it's so extreme that there are no people making like movies like that anymore. I guess I'm just saying is it just seems really dominated now. You don't see a lot of stuff like this. Mm-hmm. No. Even being made. Yeah, Beetlejuice. I, I I think Beetlejuice is a very unique movie. Sure. Like, regardless absolutely. of what time it is. Or uh, even I mean even a movie like The Heather's or yeah. movie, you know I guess that's my point. Like a lot of these like really great um, films and I'm sure there was a lot of movies in the 90s that you could think of like Forrest Gump. Mm-hmm. It's another one. You know, you don't see a mo- with movies like Forrest Gump in the movie theater that much anymore. No, like, you don't. Well, I, I think that's what's good. Like, like a movie like Get Out became so popular. That can open the door for a lot of these sure. smaller movies. Yeah. yeah. And that, that one's a great example. Unique, yeah. More unique. Yeah. So. I think I love that you brought this topic up because that is a missing niche now in, in movies because it's either two things right now like you said the big Hollywood blockbuster films or these very small independent films like prestige pictures that get nominated for Oscars mm-hmm. I think like the Michael Bay movies are just like like you say punch kill punch kill no script and that I feel like there's a lot of prestige pictures that are being made that feel by the numbers too it's just like these we're going to make a political point Mm -hmm. that we know is going to help us get nominated for an Oscar but you don't remember them two years after they're nominated there might be smaller films but there's no originality like a Beetlejuice like these they were studio pictures they weren't necessarily catered to be Oscar contenders Mm -hmm. they were just these idiosyncratic pictures Blue Velvet, which is a small picture. Even Blue yeah. Velvet in the 80s was a small picture. Yeah. Yeah. But you're not getting the Blue Velvets, mm-hmm. these higher-budgeted, idiosyncratic films that you used to get in the 80s. 
in even the 90s. Yeah, and even maybe the 70s, too, you know? I mean, even and, and, oh, then, and then beyond, you yeah. know, and then past that. It just is like, you know, like last night All About Eve was on, and we recently saw it at the Gateway, and I mean, that movie just blows me away. And it's mm-hmm. not just Betty Davis, even though she's wonderful. It's mm-hmm. just that, it's the movie, the story, the yeah. acting, the writing, everything about it. It's um, perfect. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. perfect. And, 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 and while I'm so grateful we still have it, you know, mm-hmm. we're still seeing it, a part of me is a little bit sad because it's like you see what's out there now. And then even when I rewatched Beetlejuice for the podcast, you know, you're just <laughs> like, this is sa- not happening anymore. And yeah. it's just sad. I, for, you know, because I guess I'm more of that art house type mm-hmm. of, of movie goer. I mean, I like the blockbusters don't get to, to an extent. Don't get mm-hmm. me wrong, but um, you just... It's far and few. As, as a fan of the superhero stuff, too, I like it when the superhero stuff marries the dialogue and the qualities you're talking mm-hmm. about to the material, because I think a lot of those characters are deserving of that quality. Sure. Um, the worst splockbusters I can't stand is where they put no effort into the dialogue or the story. It's goopy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, a tra- like the Transformers movies, I think, would fall into that category. Yeah, where absolutely. They, yeah. Where they, they have this huge potential, this big topic that a lot of people would like. Right. And we grew up watching Transformers and no. stuff. Um, and then, you oh, know, I hate you, that. You it's depressing. Bay in there. <laughs> yeah, and then it's just like, oh my goodness, all it is is boom, 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 boom. You can make a good film. The, the, the big thing, too, we're going on a side tangent, yeah, but I, I, yeah, I, you sorry. caught on something. The big thing for me, too, is that people think that you have to have these big explosions where the world explodes. And I'm like, yeah. no, I just have a fight between two people. Like, the, I think the recent Spider Man film was great just to watch Spider Man fight the villain. And that's all you need. You don't have yeah. to have all this spectacle in the background where things are exploding. It makes sense if it's a character that has those kind of powers. You know, but you yeah. don't. But not every character should have those powers. Sometimes, but Steven Spielberg said something recently. I thought was very interesting. Uh, he's, he he kind of likened the the, the kind of comic book stuff. He said it's almost like the westerns. Yes, and yeah. it's, it's just this genre that flourished for its time, and the comic movies that they've become that for this generation. Yeah. And I think too part of it, and maybe that's what. What makes me a little sad inside is I feel that um, there's very little originality anymore. Mm-hmm. People are either doing remakes mm-hmm. or they're doing a lot of you know superhero stuff, which already has a story. You know, not not to say that it's not um, valuable, but it seems like there's very little originality and new ideas or new concepts or new styles of film or no. or something that we haven't already seen. You know, I Get s- Out was the exception. Get Out was something well, that was like a, fr- a brusher for. A, Breath of fresh air. I think there, I think there's some room for hope because I think there's two movies that came out this year that have that are original and they fit exactly what we're talking. Not like all, all about Eve or Sunset Boulevard exactly, but uh, Baby Driver came out too, mm-hmm. and that's successful. And that only costs like thirty four million, but that's a studio movie, and it's like Get Out. It's they're both unique movies that their the director mm-hmm. had this idea and fully you know, walked it from inception, you know, mm-hmm. all the way, con- conception or not inception. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Christopher Nolan does that a lot of inception yeah. and to his credit. Yeah, inception was a great movie. That was, a, that was, it was good in the sense that it was a new idea. Yeah. Something he's, we hadn't seen He's before. really unique, Nolan. Yeah. I, so he's almost like, um, kind of like Stanley Kubrick. It was like, didn't he always work with Warner Brothers? But they let mm-hmm. him do whatever he wanted to. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Nolan has that kind of, privilege now. You just 
Yeah. It's... No one else could make Interstellar and have total artistic control, you know? Yeah, it's almost like you have to work, you have to prove that you're somewhat profitable and you can draw an audience and yeah. then they'll give you. And Warner Brothers, as a studio, has, they directed, they distributed Beetlejuice, for example. Right have always stood by idiosyncratic filmmakers like Kubrick and Burton. Even Clint Eastwood had, as yeah. a director, has always had full creative control from the studio. Mm-hmm. That's true. So, well, enough of our rants on the <laughs> right. stuff. Um, uh, how do you guys feel the movie Beetlejuice? Like, it, it is from a different time. Do you think it still holds up? I would say absolutely. And it definitely holds up. Uh, and, I just, I, and actually, I think it's... Having seen it again, actually... Uh, have greater esteem for it than I, I I did you know years before it's probably one of Tim Burton's better films mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. definitely than what he's been doing in the last 10 years <laughs> yeah. right or it's more like a cottage industry kind of mm-hmm. you know yeah I agree <laughs> I concur Brennan you concur. Uh, concur like I said earlier it's it's probably not maybe my favorite Tim Burton film but I think it is a great film I think it's fantastic um and, and when it happened in his career, it really helped set him apart and give him a name and a brand. Um, it, you know, was was a vehicle for some of these wonderful actors that we've talked about. Um, I really think, you know, I think it's great. Yeah. I wish, uh, I wish Netflix would put it on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they had it, and then they got rid of it, and then <laughs> and Amazon then had it. I know. I paid ninety nine cents for it. Uh, <laughs> Just because it'd be—it's one of those movies that'd be fun to kind of watch every night. It's very nostalgic, I think, for people right. of our generation. Yeah, yeah. We actually, uh, um, Sean and I saw it. Uh, Fritz Nightow, which is a famous local oh. uh, movie guy, we saw him do Beetlejuice a few years back. Um, I think it's—I think it stands. Out. It's such a unique. I think what we're talking about—it's such a unique original movie that it's always going to kind of stand out because it doesn't have. There's nothing about it. It's timeless in that it's not. It's of its own time. It's not of, like, 80s or anything mm-hmm. like that. And it's very much Tim Burton's idea. Because Tim Burton still kind of makes those kind of movies. He uses CGI nowadays. Right. But, you know, back then he used claymation. He would just throw, you know, claymation into a live-action movie with other kind of uh, things. So I think it holds up really, really good. The performances are great. So I love it. It's funny that you mentioned that it's not of a time because that's what Tim Burton told Michael Keaton when he was creating the character of Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. He said he's not from any time, but he's but we want him to kind of be like you know mm-hmm. unique. Yeah, like unique and timeless in a way, but not really of a specific time. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting that you said that same yeah. verbiage. So obviously that goal was realized. Right. Mission accomplished, Tim Burton. <laughs> that's right. I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with you guys. When I actually had the the luxury of seeing it on the big screen uh, recently at the Kappa Summer Movie Series, and it's great to watch again on the big screen. I also saw the same experience Scott was mentioning. It's a great movie. I think it reminds me of a time when Tim Burton was making these really great idiosyncratic films like Pee Wee and Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands mm-hmm. and Ed Wood. And I miss that Tim Burton. I kind of wish yeah. we'd see him go back to... And Nightmare Before Christmas, too. That was so, like, groundbreaking. Like, yeah. That, I mean, that's huge. Yeah, I wasn't as big a fan for some reason of that. Even though I respected the craft mm-hmm. of it, it just didn't um, resonate with me mm-hmm. in the same way. But I love the humor. I, that idiosyncratic, mm-hmm. offbeat humor of Burton's in those earlier films. You know, I was kind of raised on that. So I'm a big fan. And I always uh, end every... Uh, 
podcast by saying the best place to, if you can't watch it on the big screen like we were able to do the best place to watch it is on blu-ray it is available on blu-ray it's a 10 year old blu-ray so it's been around for a while oh wow mm-hmm. it has some kind of it, it looks pristine there aren't a lot of great special features on it I kind of wish they would upgrade that with a lot more behind the scenes stuff stuff I kind of like to watch to kind of get Maybe yeah. next year it'll come out with, uh, what, 30 years? Yeah, it's a 30th anniversary next year. Yeah, so. it's too bad. I kind of feel like it deserves the Criterion treatment in a sense. Yeah. You know, because it's mm. classic. Well, I want to thank Brennan for joining us today. He was oh, a fantastic yes. guest. You're quite and welcome. Thank you, bud. You are quite welcome. It was yeah. a blast. I yeah. fun. We'll definitely Great. have you on again, that's yeah. for sure. So, uh, do you guys have anything to uh, to mention before we take off, or...? I have nothing on the horizon that I can, or no dates, or we'll, Sean and I will be doing improv wars at some point, so, but we don't know when. <laughs> yeah, you can always look for us as the Wheeler Brothers yeah. when we're out and about, and, uh, and Tony, you have anything to mention? No, and to, like shows or anything, if that's what you're asking now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. But follow all of us, because we still do yeah. the podcast, which I is our her. it's our bread and butter. <laughs> no. I, I did just want to say to everybody that oh, you sure. can find the uh, handbook for the recently deceased on Etsy. Uh, starting from anywhere from you know nineteen ninety five to thirty nine ninety nine. Wow! So feel free to hop on over to Etsy <laughs> and um, pick up your your edition there. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, that should wrap it up for us. Um, you know, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and uh, give us a five star review if you can on iTunes or anything. We like to beg for the best possible reviews. <laughs> oh, of course. You know, why not? And uh, we'll see you next time. All right. Bye. Do you, Beetle? <laughs> Nobody says the B word. Come on. Do you take this woman to be your wedded wife? Jeez, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a big decision, isn't it? I mean, I always said if I ever did it, I was going to do it once, and that was it. Sure, yeah. Go ahead. And you, do you, Lydia, take this man to be... No! She's a little bit nervous. Uh, Maybe I should answer for her, okay? I'm Lydia Dietz, and I'm of sound mind. The man next to me is the one I want. You ask me, I'm answering. Yes, I love that man of mine. I wonder where a guy, an everyday Joe like myself, could find a little action. Bye! Yeah.